The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. It's good to have you all here with us. Um, I'm sure you're aware of what today is, right? What is it? Don't anybody say Easter, okay? Don't anybody say it's Easter, all right? I, uh, when, I, when I picked my mother up this morning, my nephew was there, and he comes over to me and he says, Happy, Happy Easter. And I looked at him, I said, Don't you know me at all? And he just, oh, what do, you, what do you say? And I said, happy Resurrection Sunday or whatever. you got to say anything. But uh, <laughs> traditionally, in churchianity, this day is called Easter. Okay, But biblically, it is the anniversary of the Israelite feast called the Feast of First Fruits. It's a very important day. The single most significant event in the history of the human race took place on the first Sunday after Passover in the year A.D. 30. That being the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But since everybody else in churchianity is celebrating Easter, let's talk about it for a minute, okay? You know i got to bash Easter, okay? (laughs) The name Easter is derived from a pagan spring fertility deity who appears with various names. So Easter is the name of a pagan god. Isn't that nice? We have a a Sunday that all Christians are celebrating a pagan deity. All right? Um, Easter is is also a name known. uh, this, This same god has various names. Easter would be the Saxon goddess of dawn, she has a hare's head, which is where this idea of bunnies come from. Ishtar is from Nineveh, introduced by the, into Britain with the Druids. Astarte, the queen of heaven from Babylon, whose worship involves sexual depravity. The egg figures prominently in the worship of Easter. Astarte was said to have sprung from an egg which fell from heaven into the Euphrates. So that's where you get all this stuff that's going on today. You know, bunnies and eggs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's where it comes from. You know, even the fast of Lent was introduced in the 6th century and was borrowed from Babylon. A similar fast was observed by the Egyptians in commemoration of Osiris. So the Easter celebration is pagan. Even the name comes from a pagan god. Now, you may be thinking, what's the big deal? I mean, is it a big deal for the church to recognize as a special holiday a day named after a pagan god? Uh, Yeah, it is a big deal, people. Listen, God told the Israelites, I don't even want you to mention the name of foreign gods. Look at Exodus 23.13. Pay attention to all I have said to you. And make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So God told Israel, don't even mention the name of pagan gods. But the church today has a celebration named after a pagan god. I once heard Pat Robertson say, Easter is the church's most high holy day. 
I don't know where he gets his theology from, but Easter is not a holy day of the church. It's a pagan celebration. So how much of Easter is Christian? None of it. None of it's biblical. None of it's commanded by the Lord. None of it's apostolic. None of it was ever observed by the early church. It's a pagan holiday. Now today is a very important date in history. It is the first Sunday after Passover which is called the Feast of First Fruits. Passover this year was on Friday, April 19th, started at sundown. So the Feast of First Fruits is today. This is the actual day in history that the Lord rose from the dead. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is a very significant day. Now in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued what was called the Easter Rule which states that Easter shall be celebrated on the first Sunday that occurs after the first full moon on or after the vernal equinox. So the church adopted this pagan holiday of Easter and celebrated on the biblical holiday of the Feast of Firstfruits. By doing this, the significance of the Feast of Firstfruits is lost in all the nonsense of Easter celebration. This day is not about bunnies. It's not about colored eggs. It's not about dressing up. This day is about resurrection from the dead. Something that's way too important to be mixing up with all the stuff that goes on. But you ask the average Christian what today is about. Ah, bunnies and eggs and, you know, churches are having Easter egg hunts and doing, you know. It's just, we're catering to the world. All right. I'm done with my Easter rant. Okay? Now, for our study this morning, I want to look at Christ, who is the resurrection, raising Lazarus from the dead. This is a Christ talks about being the resurrection, and then he illustrates it by raising someone from the dead. Very important story. Lazarus' name is Lazar. It's the shortened Greek form of Eleazar. The Hebrew verb azar means to help, And El comes from God. So here's a person whose name is God has helped. Well, that's a fitting name for someone who got raised from the dead, right? He was dead and God has helped. He's been helped by being raised from the dead. Now, the key theological phrase of this passage in John 11 is verse 25 where Yeshua states, I am the resurrection and the life. The rest of the passage is commentary on this, it's proof of this, it's illustration of this. So this whole chapter is all about this, okay? We're going to start in verse 17. Now, before 17, the Lord is with His disciples, and He gets word that His friend, Lazarus, has died. And so He says, okay, let's wait around a few days, make sure He's good and dead before we go there. And, uh, and then later they go. And so in verse 17, it says, Now when Yeshua came, so He finally arrives in Bethany, it says He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Okay? Now that is very significant. Okay? Yeshua had done other resurrections. Remember the funeral of the widow of Nain? When you know, the Lord and His disciples are coming along and they're having this funeral procession. And he stops it and raises the son and says, Hey, take care of your mom. Alright, so... But that guy had just died. They were taking him to bury him. Lazarus has been in the ground four days. 
This is a very important detail in the context of Jewish thought. It expresses the finality of Lazarus' death. See, according to cultural traditions of the Jews, it was believed that the soul hovered near the body for three days. So you can have something happen in those first three days. After the fourth day, there's no hope of resuscitation, decay had taken over, and that was it. All right, they're done. So that's why the four days here is important. They want you to understand he's good and dead. He's not mostly dead, okay? He's all the way dead. He's dead, all right? Totally dead. Now, had Yeshua left Perea as soon as he heard of Lazarus' death, he would only have been in the tomb for two days. The miracle is strengthened by waiting the four days. Verse 21, Martha said to Yeshua, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I'm sure that we're all aware that what she means is not that he would never have died, but he would have lived a little longer anyway. Uh, George Bernard Shaw put it this way, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one dies. Everybody dies, right? So she's not saying he wouldn't have died. This, this verse is a second-class conditional sentence, which is called contrary to fact. In other words, it reads like this. If you had been here with us, which you weren't, my brother would have not have died, which he did. Okay? If you had been here. You know, most of us have no doubt thought this, just as Martha did in a trial. You ever been in a trial and you just thought, if only... If I wouldn't have done this, this wouldn't have happened. Or if they wouldn't have done this, this wouldn't have happened. You ever been there? This is not Calvinistic thinking. This is not biblical thinking, okay? God is in control. He's sovereign over every event, and He controls events for His glory and our good. So don't if you're only yourself to death, okay? It's, it's no good. Martha goes on to say, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, some take these words of Martha to be an expression of our Lord's ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. I don't think that's what she's thinking at all. Because later he says, your brother will rise. She goes, I know. At the end of time, you know, on the last day he's going to rise. And then when they get to the tomb, he goes to roll it away. And she goes, she's, no, Lord, don't do that. I don't think she thought he was going to raise him from the dead. I don't think that's what this is about. All right. Verse 23, Yeshua said to her, your brother will rise again. He is referring to what's about to happen very soon. But Martha thinks he's talking about the end of the age. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, here we see Martha, who was the servant, right? She's a servant. She's all about taking care of people and meeting needs. But she knows her eschatology. Okay? How did she know this? She knew this because Yeshua taught this. Look at John 6.40. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So she says, she basically repeats what the Lord says there. She goes, the resurrection on the last day. Now, the last day is a phrase that only occurs in this Gospel. So what is Yeshua referring to here when He says the last day? What, what's He talking about? He was referring to the resurrection, and He tells us that the resurrection is going to happen on the last day. Well, when is the last day? 
The traditional view that's held by most of the church is that the resurrection takes place at the end of time. But let me just say here, the Bible never speaks of the end of time. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that expression, the end of time. The Bible speaks of the end time, or the time of the end, which refers to the end of an age. But the end of an age is not the end of time. Age ends and next age starts, all right? Now, to the Jews, time was divided into two great periods, the Mosaic Age and the Messianic Age. During the Second Temple period, they distinguished between two types of olam. The olam hazah, this world, that was the one they were living in at that time, and the olam haba, the world to come. The olam haba, or this world, is characterized by darkness. The olam hazah, this world, is a world characterized by darkness. It was called night. The Alam Haba, or the world to come, is called by the rabbis a time of joy and peace and eternity. The rabbis connected the Olam Haba and the resurrection. So according to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Well, the Scriptures testified that the time of the resurrection would be on the last day of the Old Covenant Age. We know this happened in A.D. 70, When the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was wiped out, the disciples knew the fall of the temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of the Old Covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. We see that in Matthew 24. They understood that. Look at Daniel chapter 12. It says, Now at the time Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, Daniel's people is Israel, all right? Everyone that's found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, when was Daniel told that the resurrection would take place? Well, if you drop down to verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. That's the time of the siege against Jerusalem. All right? Three and a half years. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people... Then he says, all these events will be completed. So Daniel says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, that's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. He says, all these events, including the resurrection, will be complete. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, the old covenant age. We know this happened, like I said, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed. Now, With some exceptions, such as the Sadducees, most Judeans and Galileans seem to have believed in the resurrection at the end of the age. The Tanakh taught this promise of resurrection. We see it in Job 19. We see it in David's Thanksgiving Psalm of Psalm 16. We saw it in Daniel 12. And we see it in Isaiah 26.19. It says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now, the Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead in the last day 
is also affirmed in 2 Maccabees. That's not in your Bible, unless you have a Catholic Bible. It's in there. Okay. In chapter 7, uh, we have the story of the martyrdom of seven brothers during the persecution of the 2nd century B.C. Syrian Greek king Antiochus IV. In 2 Maccabees 7.9, the second brother cries out during his torture, and he says, And when he was at his last breath, he said, You accursed wretch! You dismiss us from this present life, but the King of the universe will raise us up an everlasting renewal of life. So that was a belief they had. They believed in the resurrection. Look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will arise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha's a good Jewish, all right? She's, she believed that there was something after death. The Scriptures made this clear. She apparently thinks that Yeshua is offering words only comfort her, you know, in the doctrine of the resurrection that's going to happen sometime off. But this is not what Yeshua meant. Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, when Yeshua says, I am here, this is a predicate nominative. He's identifying himself with Yahweh from the passage in Exodus 3 where Yahweh appeared to Moses and he said, I am who I am. So he is claiming here to be Yahweh. It's a claim to deity. He uses the tetragrammaton, I am. And no other than God could say what He is saying here. I'm resurrection, I'm life. He says He's the resurrection in life. And those qualities are part of who He is. Alright? Yeshua tells her of the present realization of what she had expected on the last day. He is saying that if one has the life that I have, if you are related to Me, if He is in Me and I am in Him, You have resurrection and you have life. It's all about being related to Him who is the resurrection. He wanted Martha to think about the person who would do the resurrecting rather than the event itself. He's drawing the focus, I am Martha, look at me. It's trust in me that matters. Now the additional phrase here, and the life, is a statement related to verse 26 where he's going to say, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, the believer who is spiritually alive, will never die spiritually. Whoever receives the gift of life through belief in Christ Yeshua never dies a spiritual death because the life they receive is eternal. The life that Yeshua speaks of is a life that comes from above and is begotten through God the Holy Spirit. So, you know, verse 26 tells us, people, that the believer can never lose their salvation. Look at everyone who lives, that's spiritually, and believes in me, shall never die. So you can't lose your salvation. That's a promise from Christ right there. All right? All right, let's go back up to verse 25 again. He says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's talking about Lazarus here. Lazarus has died. He believed in him, he died, but he's going to live again. All right? He shall live. And then he adds this, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay? Here he's speaking about Martha. In the case of Lazarus, we have the picture of resurrection because he's going to come out of the grave. In the case of Martha, we have the picture of life. Then Yeshua asked Martha, Do you believe this? 
What is this? Well, it's a statement about Yeshua Himself that He gives in verse 25. He tells Mary He's the resurrection and life, but that's not all He asks her to believe. Yeshua is basically saying, I guarantee eternal life to everyone who trusts in Me. So to believe that Yeshua is the Christ is in essence to believe that He is the guarantor of eternal life to everyone who trusts in Him. That's what eternal life is about. It's trusting in the person who is life. I like what James Boyce says here. He says, Yeshua didn't ask her, do you feel better now, Martha? You have found these thoughts, have you found these thoughts comforting? Do you feel your old optimism returning? Boyce goes on to say, according to Jesus, it was not how she felt that was important. It was what she believed. Okay? And that's what is important. It's so important because our faith is the thing that's going to get us through the trials of life, not our emotions, all right? Our emotions are going to fluctuate constantly in all kinds of situations, but our faith will keep us strong. So the Lord asked her to believe, and she responds like this. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What's interesting here is Mary's words here are almost identical to the purpose statement of the Gospel. In John 20, 30 and 31, he tells us this is why he wrote the book. In verse 30, he says, Now Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in the book. Then verse 31 says this, But these are written, in other words, this is the purpose of this book. These are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So she says, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God. That's exactly what the book was written to do, to bring people to faith in Christ. This is accomplishing. You know, she's doing what this book set out to do. Martha's statement is one of the clearest recognitions of Yeshua as the Messiah that we have in John's Gospel. And it's one of the fullest professions of faith found in the New Testament. She believes. Now Martha's a servant, but she's got her theology down. Verse 28, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. Alright? Now, the New American Study Bible says here, has a great comment I think here, it says, a significant description to be given by a woman, because the rabbis would not teach women, but Yeshua taught them. Alright? I think Yeshua always had female disciples following him around. We'll see that. Okay? And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. So Mary's in the house. She doesn't know that the Lord's there, so she's just in the house grieving. But as soon as she hears it, she gets up and she goes to him. Now Yeshua had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Now Yeshua's trying to keep a low profile because the Jews are trying to kill him. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now that may not sound like a good thing initially. All these people are following. Maybe that's not so good. But yeah, because it provides a whole lot of witnesses to what's about to happen here in a few minutes. All right, Verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Yeshua was, she saw Him and she fell at His feet saying, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. that sound familiar? You know, how many times do you think that Mary and Martha said this to each other over the last four days? 
Well, where's Yeshua? We called him. He doesn't come. What's going on? If he had been here, things would be different. And they're going back and forth. And now she repeats the same thing. And it says she fell at his feet. Mary is found three times in the gospel record, and each time she's at the feet of Yeshua. Mary is always pictured at Yeshua's feet. And sitting at the feet is a Hebraism for discipleship. This is reminiscent of the Jewish saying in Abbot 1.4. It says, let your house be a meeting house for the sages and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. So when you see in the Bible sitting at his feet, that is a picture of a disciple. In other words, I'm here to learn. I'm taking in everything you're saying. So Mary's at his feet. She's a disciple. And what is so unusual about this is most rabbis discourage women from learning. The Mishnah includes some really cynical thoughts about women. But Yeshua had women disciples, and even the Bible even tells us the women disciples were supporting him, okay, financially supporting him in his travels. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, again, this, this got talked about, I'm sure, a lot. And if only, if only, well, don't worry about if only. He's there now, and so things can change. Verse 33, when Yeshua saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, 33 is a transition verse that belongs in both this section and the next paragraph. It expresses Yeshua's awareness and his response to Mary's grief. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still identifies with the pain that these ladies are experiencing right then. In both verses 33 and 38, Yeshua exhibits a strong display of emotion. Now, scholars have found the Greek in these passages very difficult to translate. And the difficulty is in what is being rendered by the Greek terms, their Semitic idioms, and they express deep internal emotion But the debate is whether, is this talking about the emotion of sorrow or anger? And that's what they can't seem to, you know, decide here. That's what the big turmoil is about. But I want you to see here, the words deeply moved are from the Greek word embrimaomai, and it means moved with the deepest emotions. It means deeply distressed. And the words greatly troubled are from the Greek tarasso, and it means to shudder or to sigh. These verbs, which appear both in 33 and 38, have the basic meaning of implying an articulate expression of anger or indignation as well as sorrow. He's grieving along with Mary and Martha. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit. Literally in the Greek it says he snorted in the spirit. Now that's an idiom. It's used of anger often in the Scripture. But in this context, I think the translation is showing a deep emotion is preferred. Professor Matthew Black, who was for many years principal of St. Mary's College at the University of St. Andrews, he did a rather detailed study of this expression, that he raged in his spirit. And he concluded there is no sense of anger in this, and that all it meant that he was deeply moved in his spirit, deeply moved in the sense that he was disturbed over the events. Whether this emotion was anger or grief or a combination of both, this passage allows us to reflect on the depth of Yeshua's humanity. Okay? 
He's showing human feelings here. We see that He's fully divine and yet He's fully human. He experienced all the emotions that we feel. Now whether the reason is clear that the death of Lazarus and the grief of the family and friends stirred Yeshua deeply, this is an important aspect of the story here. All right, Very important because the God who Yeshua reveals deeply cares about us. And that's what He's trying to show us here. What you see in Yeshua, you see this grief, you see this sorrow, you are seeing this in Yahweh. Look at what was said in John 14.9. Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, put that into these verses. So we, here we see God feels deeply about the things we're going through. God, people, God cares about us, okay? He's not apathetic. He's sympathetic. Now, the Greeks described their gods by the word apatheia. Know what that means? That's what we translate apathetic. Their gods were apathetic. In other words, their gods could care less about them. Great gods they served, huh? Pathos, with an alpha privative, means no feelings. So to the Greeks, the deities were apatheia. They didn't care. But that's not how the Bible and Yeshua portray our God Yahweh. He shares in our pain. In a real sense, God through Christ grieves more deeply than we do. Like I said, He's about to raise the dead. He's about to fix this situation, but He grieves because they're grieving. Now, verses 17-33 through focus on Yeshua's dialogue with Martha and Mary. And then in verses 34-44, through it describes the trip to the tomb and the raising of Lazarus. In verse 34, He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now he is deeply moved by all the grief, and he asked them to take him to the tomb. And then it says, Yeshua wept. If you're going to do some memorization work in the Scriptures, this is a good verse to start with, okay? You should be able to get this one down without too much trouble. All right, and then you can move on from there, hopefully. But the Greek verb translated wept here is dakuro, when it means to tear in the eye or to shed tears. Now, this is different from the Greek verb translated weeping in 1133, which is kylo, and it means to wail. So Yeshua is at the tomb, and He is tearing up, He is shedding tears, while the people around Him are wailing. I mean, they're making all kinds of noise, and He is just tearing up over the situation. And Yeshua's tears demonstrate His compassion for humanity. Three times in the New Testament, we're told that Yeshua wept. One of them is here. One of them's over Jerusalem, and one of them was in Gethsemane. And it says, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Again, this is talking about who? Lazarus. Three times in this chapter we're told that he loved Lazarus. That's important. We'll get to the reason in a minute. Verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, Yeshua's healing of the blind man had occurred several months earlier, but it obviously made a strong impression on the people living in Jerusalem. The crowd of mourners have no doubts about the reality of Yeshua's miracle-working power. They saw it. He healed the blind. Their question is a natural one. 
Since Yeshua has performed such wonderful miracles, since He's got such power, why didn't He heal this man He loved? See, they couldn't reconcile Yeshua's love and His power with Lazarus' death. I know we've all been there. Why did God let this happen? God's all-powerful. God's sovereign. God's in control. God loves me. Why does He let this happen? I don't know. Sometimes we just don't know. That's right. It's His will. We don't get to figure everything out. But there's no conflict here between His power and His love. Yeshua loved Him, and He has great power. So why didn't He heal Him? He's gonna. Okay? But this is for the glory of God. Like I said, He wanted to make sure He was dead. I mean, healing Him would have been a great miracle, but raising Him from the dead after four days, that's, you know, that's a bigger miracle, All right. And when you ask, you know, if God loves this man, why didn't He do something? You know what you're doing? You're questioning God's love. You're questioning His love. Is God really love? Why didn't He do something? The Bible says that God is love. But many question that when tragedy strikes. You know, we can't just... If it's not going the way we want it to go, it's not very loving on God's part. Right? What is the greatest act of love that God ever committed? The death of His Son. Now, (laughs) can you rationalize all that in your brain? He murdered, he butchered his son. That was an act of love. All right? You know, people just get, get upset when their life doesn't go the way they want it to go. It's not about you. Okay, I got news for you. I right, know it's hard in our culture, in this me culture, it's hard to understand that, but it's not about you. It's about God and bringing glory to Him. So we just live lives of submission to the circumstances that God brings in our life, giving Him glory, giving Him honor, no matter what the situation. Okay, let's move on. Verse 38. Then Yeshua, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So again here, deeply moved. This is the verb, embrimaomai, which means moved in the deepest emotion. He's touched with compassion as He enters into the grief of those around Him. Verse 39 says, Yeshua said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. It says, Martha, the sister of the dead man. Does that sound strange? The sister of the dead man? Why didn't he just call Lazarus by name? It's because he's writing this about himself. So he just calls himself the, you know, the sister of the dead man. He just calls himself the dead man. Lord, by this time there will be an odor. You know what the King James says here? By now he stinketh. And what's interesting here, okay, so what's her concern here? What's Martha's concern? Um, She doesn't appeal to the Lord on the basis of ritual uncleanness and contact with the dead body. Lord, Lord, we're Jews, we can't touch a dead body, we can't be near a dead body. None of that stuff. What does she say? Her concern, listen, her concern was a practical one. I read this verse, I think of my wife. No, that smell will be bad for the people around here. She's a Martha. She's worried about everybody else around. What, you know, that was her concern. Listen, that guy's been dead four days. I don't, I don't, that smell's not going to be good, okay? 
It's not going to be good for the mourners. Four days he's been dead. Again, this statement by Martha is extremely significant for understanding what took place. There's no doubt he's dead. Okay? The decomposition of the body has taken place. There's a bad odor. He's dead. Now, the Jews did nothing to stop decay. All right? They wrapped the body. They would sprinkle it with spices to mitigate the smell. That's it. And Martha says, he's stinking. He's been dead four days. Yeshua said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Martha, you just got to trust me. You're going to see God's glory, His glorious resurrection power. Verse 41 and 42. Then they took away the stone, and Yeshua lifted His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You've heard me. I know that You always hear me, but I said this on account of those people standing around, that they might believe that You have sent me. What Yeshua was doing before He raised Lazarus from the dead was to show the people that He acted in absolute reliance and total obedience upon the Father. Alright? So they took away the stone. Can you imagine being there? I mean, they followed. He went to the tomb and they're like, we know He's got power. He, he, you know, he gave sight to the blind. This man's done some, some incredible things. They probably even heard about the resurrection of the widow of Nain's son. And so they're like, what's going to happen here? And this... Stone gets rolled away and like, whoa, decaying flesh. You know, if you never smell the dead body, it's not something you'll forget, all right? Can you even imagine being there? You know, they're all covering up, you know, oh, keep trying to keep their eyes on the Lord as the stone gets rolled away. They must have been thinking, what's going to happen? What's he going to do? And then Yeshua just lifts up his eyes and he prays. He looks up, not because God's physically above him, all right, but that was a common Jewish practice when praying. He wants those who are there to witness that the Father is the source of this power, this miracle. And notice what he asked for in prayer. What's he asked for? Father, he says, thank you. That's, he's not asking for anything. He doesn't petition God to intervene. He begins with the thanks for what God has already done. He does, he's not asking God to raise Lazarus here. He spoke as though the raising of Lazarus was something that the Father had already decreed. Which it was, because if you go back to verse 11, the Lord says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. Because that was God's plan. So he's just, Father, thanks. It's time for the plan to work out. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He cries out with a loud voice. He doesn't mumble these words under his breath so that no one will hear him. He yells out loudly, So no one comes away from this burial wondering if there's a connection between the shout of the Lord and the raising of Lazarus, All right, We want to get this straight. And he says, Lazarus, come out. That's it. No fanfare. No speaking in tongues. No trumpets. No little, you know, ceremonial dance or anything. He just calls them to come out. Commenting on this, Augustine said, if he had not said Lazarus, if he had not said Lazarus, the whole cemetery would have come for him. Okay, so that's why he's being specific here, all right? Now, while our Lord used different methods to perform his miracles of healing, his method of raising the dead was always the same. He spoke to them, the dead, as if they'd heard. Do you know why he did that? Because when he speaks, they do hear. Look at John 5.25. 
Truly, truly, I say unto you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. How do the dead hear? Well, the voice of the Son of God is a sovereign, life-giving voice. This verse is fleshed out in Lazarus. Lazarus hears the call and he comes out. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Yeshua said to them, unbind him, let him go. The man who had died came out. What this means is that Yeshua reconstitutes the putrefying flesh. He renews the dehydrated blood. He restores the body fluids. He reverses the cold, hard stiffness of death. He resuscitates the hearts and the lungs. All this and more simply by the power of His Word. Because of because He is the resurrection and the life, His voice commands the one who has been dead for four days. Can you picture Lazarus? you got no consciousness. You're laying there dead and all of a sudden, boom, you're awake. And your eyes, well, you're all wrapped up. It's dark in here. You're all bound up laying there. You know, you've been dead for four days. Can't imagine what went through Lazarus' mind. So by His Word, He calls forth life out of death. Just as in the original creative act in the beginning of the world when He spoke and the world came into existence, He speaks and the dead come to life. Now, in this sign, Yeshua has given back physical life as a sign of His power to give eternal life on that promised day. He promised to raise the dead. He's demonstrating now that He can keep that promise because He just raised the dead. Something I found interesting was in the Christian art found in the catacombs in Rome in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, there's over 150 representations of Lazarus being raised from the dead. They viewed that as a pretty significant deal. And if you remember in our study, after this happened, the Jews wanted to kill Lazarus too because it was causing a he's a celebrity, you know. This guy's been dead four days. Now he's around. All right, it tells us his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips. The corpse was customarily laid on a linen sheet, a long sheet that was you know, wide enough to cover the body completely and twice as long. So they'd lay him down at the bottom and they'd wrap it up over the top of him, down to his feet. They'd tie it around the ankles. They'd tie the, the arms to the body. They'd put a face cloth over it. And he's all bound up. So I want to ask you, how do you get out of the tomb? He's all wrapped. <laughs> Your feet are wrapped. You know, all, okay. All of a sudden, somehow he's dead, but he hears this voice because now he's reconstituted. He's alive, and he's laying there all wrapped up, and he's been told to come out. And he's probably thinking, "Where am I? What's happening? How do I get out of here? Did he hop out? Did he did he jump up and just you know bounce out of the thing? Well." Think about this. Just a few minutes ago, he was an oozing mass of decaying, bloated flesh. So if Yeshua could make him new, I'm sure you could get him out of there with no problem. He may have just hovered to the entrance of the tomb. And there he is. Just, and he just slowly, slowly goes down and he's standing there, you know? And Yeshua tells the people there, listen, unbind him, let him go. See, the witnesses to this resurrection... Those there to mourn Lazarus' death are involved in the outworking of the miracle. 
They see and they hear Yeshua calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And then they watch the stone be rolled away. They're helping in that. And now they're told to help get him unwrapped. And they're like eyewitnesses of this account. This physical resurrection of Lazarus is a picture, people, of our spiritual resurrection. Okay? Physical to picture our spiritual. This miracle confirms the statement of Yeshua in verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. It authenticated Yeshua's authority to grant eternal life to those who believe. So the resurrection of Lazarus is acted out parable of Christian conversion in life. It's a picture. So let me ask you this. What part did Lazarus play in his resurrection? He's laying there dead. Flesh is rotting. Corpse is a mess. He's stinking. And he's laying there thinking though. You know, I think I'm going to choose life. I'm going to choose to believe in Christ so I can get out of this mess. Alright, the picture is dead. Okay, He's all the way dead. He's rotting. And this is a picture of sinners dead in their trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. Cut off from the life of God. As a dead man, he had no power to raise himself or even think about raising himself. He didn't care because he's dead. He needed new life and that comes only from God. Lazarus is a dead man and he hears the voice of our Lord. That's the miracle of the power of God through the Word of God. He's dead but he can hear because God's Word gives life. That's how dead men come to life. And it's the same today. God calls us and we come to life and then we believe. The church has it backwards. You don't believe and then you get life. How do dead people believe? They don't. Life comes from God. Then we respond with faith. Now this is pretty amazing. I mean, can you, if you could just be there and watch this stuff, okay? Wow, they opened the tomb and it stunk, but all of a sudden here's Lazarus and he's perfectly fine. And wrap him, they're probably wondering, what's under here? You know, is this still him? Is it, you know, and they're, they're thinking maybe he's going to be all rotten under there and they take it off and it's, hey guys, what's, what's for lunch? They always have food at funerals, right? Let's go eat, I haven't eaten in four days. All right, he's been fasting, all right? As amazing as this is, it gets better. See, Yeshua not only raised Lazarus from the dead, He raises himself from the dead also. Rome puts him to death, saying, we're done. And the power of Rome was crucifixion. Rome had the power of death, and people feared Rome because of that power. And Christ says, not me. He overcomes the power of Rome and defeats death. Let's look at the story in Mark 16, 1-6. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled, rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek issue of Nazareth, who was crucified? He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. So Yeshua claimed to be God, and he proved his claim by conquering death. 
You know what that means? It means that you better pay very close attention to whatever the Lord says, okay? Because He is God. And He said this in John 14, 6, I am the way, and by this He means I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He is life. To abandon, we got to just get rid of this notion that all religions lead to the same place. How many people have you talked to that believe that? Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but also believe in all this and all that. No, you know, like you put another trophy on your shelf. No. It's Him alone. Yeshua said, I'm the door. The only door. If anyone enters by Me, He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's the only way to heaven. The Christian faith is not based primarily on the teaching of Yeshua, the life of Yeshua, the miracles of Yeshua, or the death of Yeshua. The Christian faith is based on all of these culminating in the resurrection from the dead. See, if there is no resurrection, none of those other things matter. Teaching doesn't matter. His life doesn't matter. It's all a lie if He didn't raise from the dead. So people ask, well, does a person have to believe in the resurrection of Christ to be a Christian? According to the Bible, they do. Because if you don't believe, you're making God a liar. Look at Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. See, eternal life is predicated on belief in the resurrection. You have to believe that God raised Him from the dead. Why is that so important? Because the resurrection proved that Christ was all He said He was. Hopefully you can see the importance of it. If you dismiss the resurrection, you pull the heart out of Christianity. Because this is what it's about. And that's what this Sunday is about. Resurrection. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. Resurrection. Victory over death. Yeshua said, I guarantee life to everyone who believes in Me. And that's quite a promise, people. But remember, it's a promise coming from a man who raised the dead and then rose himself just as he said he would. Look, let's go back to John 2 for a moment. John 2, 19-20. Here's the promise that Christ makes that I'm going to raise myself from the dead. Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple. Three days I'll raise it up. Now they're thinking, well, he's at the temple. They're thinking the Jewish temple. The Jews said, It's been 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So he tells him, you destroy me in three days. And guess what? Three days later. And people, Yeshua not only conquered death for himself, he conquered death for everyone who comes to him in faith. I am. He's saying, I'm Yahweh and I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And people, that is what this day is all about. It's not about bunnies. It's not about eggs. It's not about any of those foolish, nonsense things. It's about the day of the Feast of First Fruits, the Jewish feast, when the Lord came out of the grave victorious over death and promises life to all who believe in Him. That's way too big a deal for me to put anything else in its place, to add anything to it, to confuse people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to come together and worship You, Lord. Father, we we thank You. I thank You for the truth, Father, that death 
has been overcome by you. We have victory in you, Lord. Thank you for that. May it always be a cause of rejoicing, Lord. Know that we have eternal life and we will never die. Thank you, God, for your great promises to us. Thank you for the encouragement they bring us, Lord. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen.